Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Kyle Scott, who sold his Philadelphia sports blog, Crossing Broad, in a deal valued at over $25 million. But before we get there, a quick word from today's sponsor of the show, Scribe Media. You know, there's an old expression that the best businesses are bought, not sold. Meaning, when an acquirer approaches you, you're in the catbird seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage because they're coming to you. The question is, how do they find you? Well, acquirers typically target an industry. They're either rolling up an industry or have a specific need in a specific sector. And so they quickly search for who the leaders are in that industry. And if you've written the book on your industry, you bubble quickly to the surface. Now, what if you don't have time to write a book or maybe you're not just a writer? That's where Scribe Media can help. Scribe Media is the book publishing company responsible for bringing the visions of entrepreneurs like David Goggins, Nikki Barua, and Robert Glazier to life. And this is a strategy our own guests at Built to Sell Radio have pursued. You may recall James Ashford was episode 335. He's the guy behind the company Go Proposal. Now, he wanted to get known as a thought leader in the accounting industry. And so we wrote a book called Selling to Serve. And it was a few months later that one of the giants in the accounting industry, Sage, noticed the book, noticed James's company, and made him a healthy eight-figure acquisition offer. Look, writing a book can put your company on the map, and you get bonus points from me if you co-write it with your second-in-command, your general manager, so that some of the brand buzz and equity accrues to your 2IC or your general manager, making sure your business doesn't come too dependent on you personally. Now, you may be saying, well, well, I'm not a writer, nor is my second in command for that matter. Well, no problem. Scribe Media lets you speak your book, and then they will write it for you in your voice. Let me say that again. They will write it for you. When it's time to sell your business, buyers will know exactly who you are, what you stand for, and the legacy they'll inherit from the company you've built. Visit scribemedia.com and book your free consultation today. Okay, so now as you're going to hear in today's episode, more towards the end, uh, the deal was quite complex. So what I've done for you is I have found the deal terms to this acquisition and shared it in the show notes, which can be found over at builttosell.com, just to make it super, super simple for you. Quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you want to help support the show, you can do so by leaving a rating and review. Ratings and reviews truly help our show get in front of more people just like you. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Kyle Scott, who, as I mentioned, started the sports blog Crossing Broad. Now, the blog gained popularity amongst Philly sports fans. He was having hundreds of thousands of people visiting his site, but it wasn't until a 2018 Supreme Court ruling where everything changed for the better for Kyle. Now, as you're listening to today's episodes, a few things I want you to look out for. I want you to look out for how to monetize your audience without appearing desperate, how to strike a balance between creating content for SEO and for your audience, how to determine if merging with a competitor is beneficial to your company, and how to negotiate achievable performance milestones for an earnout. Here to share with you the full story of how he sold his company in 2020 is Kyle Scott. Enjoy. Kyle Scott, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I want you to take me back to 2009. Roy Halladay gets traded and you get your keyboard out. What happened? Yeah. Wow. Okay. You do your homework. So, um, yeah, so I ha- I'm from Philadelphia and I've always been a sports fan and with a big interest in media, had a journalism degree and all that, but I never went the traditional route of journalism. So about five years after college, I had bounced around 
uh, in digital marketing, online marketing, affiliate marketing, e-commerce, worked for a publicly traded e-commerce company. Um, so I had this background in, in making money on the internet. I kind of understood that side and had some education in journalism. And I was like, man, in Philadelphia right now, the Phillies are so hot. Um, you know, sports are always a big deal here, but in particular, that was a pretty big time. And I was like, I just, I feel like if I can build an audience, I can, I can monetize it now. I know enough different avenues to generate revenue on the internet. So I'm like, I'm going to double down on the content. It's something I love. And then hopefully within a year or two, I can figure out how to make money with it. And that was it. I always wanted to work for myself. And I was like 25, 26. And I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So that, that was pretty and, much it. And you started a website to cover Philadelphia sports called Crossing Broad, where yeah, you cover yeah. the Phillies, the Flyers, Villanova, the, the rest of the kind of Philly sports scene. Yeah, you hit it. I probably left the meat out there. But yeah, I started this blog called Crossing Broad, and I called it Philly's Most Irreverent Sports Blog. And what I wanted to do was cover the local teams. There's no shortage of coverage of sports in any major city, but particularly Philadelphia, you know, like three newspapers, two, two radio stations, I mean, just countless, countless blogs, now Twitter accounts, now podcasts. But I was like, I'm going to do this a little bit different. I always liked at work reading sites like TMZ or Deadspin, or even I was like early Barstool. And I was like, I could bring some edge to this, a little bit of gossip, to be honest, and like give sports fans locally something that they're not getting from the other 96 outlets covering the teams. And I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to shatter some glass and ruffle some feathers. Um, some people aren't going to like that, but it, it will help me stand out. And, and that kind of quickly allowed me to get traction with this. It was just a blog pretty much. That's so cool. So I know that you started in 2009. I read somewhere that 2011, a couple of years later, your tax return was like 17 grand or something like that. So like you, you got it off the ground, you're making some money. How are you monetizing it early? What was the kind of model then? Yeah, early on it was uh, it was pretty much all network ads. So you know, traditional Google ads, and you, know, you could do the math. If I get X number of page views, I can get X thousand dollars per month or X hundred dollars per month at that point. And uh, you know, and then I found some ad networks that were specialized towards sports websites, so they paid a little bit better than Google did, and, and things like that. But yeah, for a few years there, it wasn't a lot, and I had left a job that was paying me. You know, I was like mid twenties, like fifty, sixty thousand a year. It was a decent job, you know, and upward trajectory and all that stuff. And I had to convince my parents, who I had moved home with at the time, to oh, like no. let, me, let me do this. So I, whatever I put on that tax return, I probably told my dad it was like two or three times as much that year because, um, but, you know, credit to them because they kind of gave me the headroom. They didn't give me money, but they're like, listen, you could live here and try this for a year. And, you know, like you got a roof over your head, but like you better figure it out quick. And you did. And I mean, early you had a, a bunch of different revenue models. One that was kind of interesting uh, was the surveys. Can you talk a little bit about the Google surveys and, and how that uh, played out? Yeah. Yeah. So sort of picking up there after a few years in the ad network, the site, it, it kept growing, but I was like, man, to end, you know, to ever turn this into a, a six figure income or a business that I can sell, I'm going to need to like two, three, four X traffic and just keep feeding that traffic beast all day, every day, which is, was just me at the time, which is really difficult. Um, so I was like looking into other ways to monetize and I had done, so I tried some local direct ads, but working with local sports bars is like impossible. Um, I had tried some affiliate stuff with like local t-shirt vendors and that did okay at times. I was like, I really need something else that's consistent. And I just happened to read this article about these things called Google consumer surveys. And you might still see them today on like YouTube videos where you'll get like a research question and you have to answer it before you could watch the video. Well, that was actually born out of this like extra, Google employees get like an extra 20% of their time to tinker and like create. And that's yep. what that came out of. And someone's like, we're going to come up with something for small publishers to help monetize their audience without putting up a paywall. And an advertiser will pay us 10 cents and us, Google, will keep five and we'll pay five cents to whatever publisher can generate a click and an answer. And so I had these readers. It was like a very consistent readership. So... I threw them on our homepage and I told the readers what they were. I was like, you want to support the site, do this. And it took my revenue, you know, more than doubled it overnight and put me, you know, decently into six figures. And I was like, okay, this, this is now workable. And then 
Google eventually told me that I was one of their highest click-through rates um, in the <laughs> whole program. They were working with 200 local newspapers and publishers, but they were putting them on articles and people would see them and they didn't know what they were. And 15 or 20% of people would click through and the rest would just leave. But for my site, the, the rate was like 65% because it was the same people every day. They knew it was one guy and, and they wanted to support the site. And I don't know how many people were truthful in their answers, but they answered them and I got the five cents you know, along the way. So when was the last time you had an employee make a mistake that ended up impacting a customer? Stop mistakes before they happen. With VidGuide, your video-based instructions pop up directly into the software your employees use. From Salesforce to QuickBooks, and from Bamboo HR to HubSpot, if you use it to run your business, VidGuide integrates with it. As a Built to Sell listener, you can grab a free 14-day trial at vidguide.com slash free. So you got the thing up to you know, low six, six figures, and then I, I understand Google made a decision that really cut that for you. What happened? Yeah, so to this day, I will never answer one of those. Uh, I'll skip those out of spite. So the, it was a very small team at Google working on this because, again, it was spun up in their labs. And I had a human contact at Google. A guy would call me. He was in San Fran. We would talk about the Warriors and the Sixers, which is very rare if anyone's ever dealt with Google. You usually don't get a person. Um, and he called me one day. And he's like, listen, we've decided, our company, not us, but our, our company has decided that we could just put these on our own YouTube videos or in our, in our Android platform because we have audience. So why should we pay out 50% of this 10 cents to publishers? We have eyeballs. And they took, you know, my, my revenue literally went from, you know, $200 a day, $250 a day. And when it's just me, that was, you know, decent money to, um, uh, you know, two cents, like literally two cents overnight. And I had just, you know, my wife had just quit her job. We just had a kid. And I was, you know, I was like, oh. you know. Shame on me. I had put a lot of my eggs in that basket. It was easy money. Um, and I learned a lot about diversifying revenue after that. But that stung and it was difficult and really frustrating because Google had created that for small publishers. And then they just decided to, to kind of rug pull the thing. It's a rounding what error did for you, them, but a real business. What problem. did you do? Uh, so you, you got a kid, kid brand, like brand new baby. You're recently married. I mean, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we just bought a house too, and it was a little more than we could afford. You know, and I was like, oh, this is going well. And that it was tough. So I, I there were some other solutions out there that I tried. This is maybe 2016, 2017. Um, so not that long ago. Um, you know, but I, I was like, I need or I need a business. I can't just rely on other people's money like advertisers. I have to find something where I'm bringing some more value than just eyeballs. So um uh I I had seen the money that could be made in local unlicensed apparel, these kind of sport catchy slogans of sports t-shirts. And you, know, you could sell a lot of those. And as an affiliate, I was only making $2 a shirt, I referred. But I did the math. I was, I was like, I could print these on my own. My wife, part of her leaving her job was like thinking about doing this and she would help fulfill the orders. And you know, we could get shirts for five, six, seven dollars and sell them for 25, pretty good margins. And, you know, during peak times when teams are good, our audience is big enough where we can move thousands of shirts and, you know, you can kind of do the math and you could, you can get in the six figures on the shirt side. So this was about a year, nine months before uh, the 2017 football season. And the, the Eagles happened to win the Super Bowl that year. So the timing, 2017 was a rough year early in the year, but as the year went on and we were building up this business, it was like, okay, we're replacing this revenue and then some. And then they go on to win the Super Bowl early the next year. And, uh, you know, we sold, you know, well into five-figure sales. And, you know, you're, you're making $15, $20 a shirt. And um, it was a good, it kind of like saved the business um, after the- What the was your most popular uh, t-shirt? What did it say on the front? Uh, Philly Special. It was, there were two. Philly Special was one. And it was this play the Eagles ran in the Super Bowl um, again, on fourth down against the Patriots, um, quarterback, Nick Foles caught the ball in the end zone. And we had a diagram of the play and we sold a ton of those. And then a few days later, Jason Kelsey, their center at the parade wore a mummer. It's kind of like this, like a cartoon figure in Philadelphia. And he gave this profanity laced speech. And we put one of the clean quotes from the speech and a caricature of him on the shirt. And, um, I always joke that, um, Doug Peterson, the coach and Jason Kelsey, the center 
paid for uh, my like my deck and my lawn at my old house. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever run into legal trouble with the Phillies or any of the or the Eagles? Kind of, they've got to have like super strict lawyers about the use of the name, use of you know the images. Do you ever run into any of that stuff? Yeah, I, we've got we got a few cease and desists, um, but they were usually from Major League Baseball was the toughest. Like anything with even the colors, they would because they knew they could just scare you, and they were right. Um, the teams no, I think the teams knew us locally and knew that ultimately we were like a positive force, and we weren't we weren't pulling any real money out of their pockets. Um, I, I, you know, some brands, like we did a knockoff on a Hershey's logo with one of the Phillies players. So we heard from Hershey's, not the Phillies, you know, um, it, it Barstool actually took our design for Philly special. So I had a legal thing with them, never really went anywhere. So it was more like fighting with other businesses on occasion than, than the leagues and, and certainly the teams. Take me through the 2017, I think it was in 2017, around this time, where Jeff and Mike invested. Maybe walk me through where you were in the business. What prompted bringing on some outside capital? Yeah. So you know, this is a this is a blog again. I thought it was something. It was basically a no overhead business. But as time went on, and then I got kind of lost all this Google income. I was like, you know, I could either I either got to figure out a way to replace that revenue within the next five to six months, or I have to go get you know a big boy job. Right. And, um, and I thought, and I just kind of put something in passing on the website about looking for investment, almost offhand comment. And a couple of guys reached out to me who were fans of the site. One guy was a local cardiologist, another guy owned a local business and, you know, they had some extra cash and they're like, Hey, we like the site, you know, let's talk. So we got beers a few times and they put in a little bit of money, nothing outrageous, got a chunk of the business. And this was heading into that Super Bowl season. So before we had this like little mini windfall from the shirts but it was enough for me to hire a second writer and a few freelancers to kind of ease the burden of me having to produce all the content. And um, so that really helped. And then it freed me up to work on some of those business things like the apparel and like, you know, probably the affiliate stuff we'll talk about in a minute here that really allowed me to kind of like think about like, you know, how do I just keep this from a lifestyle business and actually grow it into something scalable? Yeah. How did you place a value on the business? Because you'd come off this great year with the Google uh, survey, a couple hundred grand, and then boom, they turn off the lights. So, you know, depending on what Jeff and Mike looked at, they might see a business that had some value versus one that had kind of very little value. So how did you guys think about valuation for that that investment? Yeah. I mean, I I wish I'd been more sophisticated about it. Um, You know, it was kind of really my only option. And you know, they're actually just talked to Mike a little while ago. They're, you know, great guys, good friends. You know, a lot we talk every day. Turned out to be a really good investment for them, you know, and me. I mean, it, it worked out in both ways. They got a pretty, like, you know, a solid, reasonable minority stake in the company, you know. And at the time, had I known what the upside would have been with affiliate marketing, I probably would have driven a, a higher bargain. But they were kind of, they said, look, we're expecting to lose this money. We think this is a cool business. It's not so much we lose that we're going to lose our house or anything. We'll put some money in and support it. And I pitched it to them as this is never going to be a million dollar opportunity. This is going to have a dividend. Um, you know, maybe maybe I could pay you guys back 10, 15 grand a year and it, your money makes a little cash for you. And then uh, are you able are you able to share sort of how much they kicked in and what, what kind of equity they got for it? Yeah, uh, they kicked in five figures, not six uh, and roughly like a quarter of the business at the time. We kind okay. of redid Got things it. along the way, but that was, it was those are the rough parameters. Yeah, that's super helpful. But it gave you enough to bridge to the apparel. You had the success with the uh, Eagles going to the Super Bowl, and that was enough to sort of start cash flowing again. Is that yeah? Is that the- yeah, yeah. Once the um, once the apparel store picked up by the end of the year, we started you know breaking even enough to cover the guys that they had invested money to basically basically invested enough to cover a full-timer and a handful of freelancers for a year. And then by the end of that year, the t-shirt store was doing well enough to do that, make me some money again, you know, make me some income. And then the Eagles win the Super Bowl. And that basically like gives us three years or two or three years of runway in six weeks. So it was a nice so, breather. So t- take me through the, the shift or the pivot into sports betting. There was a, a legal change a change in in a federal law i believe that that sort of opened 
a whole new revenue stream for maybe walk for, folks listening to this may or may not have any sort of appreciation for sports betting or sort of some of the law. So walk through for layman what happened in, you know, I think it was 2018. Yeah. So it was 2018 and there was this law um, called PASPA, I forget what it stood for in the Supreme Court. And it basically said, in short, that the only place you could legally gamble on sports was in Nevada, right? And it, it restricted states from making their own decision. And the leagues and teams had really kind of seen the money coming and they began to kind of lobby for this behind the scenes. You know, some of them claim the NFL claimed they didn't want gambling, but they began to lobby for this in New Jersey. Chris Christie in New Jersey actually sort of led the charge here. New Jersey took a case to the Supreme Court, which overturned PASPA. And what that did is it freed up every state to come up with their own sports betting and uh, online, online sports betting and online casino rules. And sport, you know, just in-person sports betting. And so that opened this Pandora's box, which is still playing out today, where all of these states are realizing they can take, get some revenue because they're charging taxes on bets uh, if they legalize betting. And I happen to be really lucky because New Jersey was the state leading the charge. And they had like, they were ready to go. Once this thing was overturned, it was like months. They had a framework. They had applications for companies like DraftKings and FanDuel, these big online apps. And then the second state to really go after was Pennsylvania. So I'm sitting with a site in Philadelphia. And if you know anything about, you know, a map, Philly sits on the river that separates Pennsylvania and New Jersey. 60% of our readers were in Pennsylvania, 40% were in New Jersey. And I was like, wow, this is great. I should be able to make some money with this, right? There, there will be some money coming into the space. And I was racking my brain for a few months, like, how do we go about it, right? And I happened to have this background in, a, in affiliate marketing, which for those who don't know is, is digital marketing when on a website, I refer a product and there's a link. And if you click the link and buy the product, I'll get a 10% commission, right? Well, one of the thing, one of the highest income areas in affiliate marketing is online gambling, insurance, things that have like big revenue potential. The average customer to a sports book is worth maybe one or $2,000 over time. So they're willing. I had a conversation with someone from DraftKings right after this, and they said, we might be willing to pay you like $300 per person that you refer to us. You know, and I'm like, you know, I, a couple of years ago, I was doing $2 on a t-shirt referral. And <laughs> You know, I'm like, I got huh. hundreds of thousands of readers and I'm just like, if I do 2% of them in New Jersey and I'm looking at my Google analytics and times 300 and I'm like, no, nah, that can't be right. And I do it again. I'm like, okay, there, there's, there's multiple, com excuse me, there's multiple commas here. Um, so at that point I was like, I have to be an affiliate for these sports books and I have to really, I have to really go about it in a sophisticated way because I knew it would be a competitive space. There'd be lots of big publishers going after search terms in Google. So I knew I'd have to do more than just throw a link on the website. That would have worked a little bit. But I was like, if I do this right and I rank in Google for some, for some terms, people looking to sign up for sports books, this could be a seven, even eight-figure eight figure business. And at that point, I was so, all in on the business side. That was it. So when you say do it right... What do you mean by that? Like, how did you integrate this sports booking, like sports book affiliate links to make it, make it work as opposed to what you could have done, which was somewhat of a superficial approach? Sure. So, you know, up until that point, even though I had some writing help at that point, I was still, you know, I woke up every day. It was almost like being a baker, you know, every day there's so much sports content and I'd spend two hours at the end of the day on the business side, invoicing, looking for an advertiser a little bit more on the t-shirts, but ultimately I was like recreating the product every day. And when you do affiliate marketing, I could have, DraftKings would say, give me a link. And if I referred someone, I'd get $300. And, you know, we started working with other sports books in the same capacity, similar type terms. And if I just put that on the website at the end of an article and said, hey, if you want to bet and you're in New Jersey, because Pennsylvania hadn't even legalized yet, you know, click here, sign up for DraftKings. And that would have made good money. It would have been our highest income source. But so many people, because there was so much confusion, there's still confusion. People were going to Google and searching New Jersey online sports betting. How do I bet on sports in New Jersey? And you can, there's tools out there. and You can see how many people are searching for these things. And almost any like how-to or shopping thing that you type into Google, 
you know, for people who don't know and aren't like internet native or almost every site there is getting money to refer you to whatever they're writing about. If you're reading a review for a television, some of them do a really good job with the reviews. But at the end of the day, if you click their link and buy that TV or buy that part for your car, they're getting a commission. And with gambling, those commissions are very big. So I knew there'd be a lot of competition there, but I had this website which ranked really well in Google. And I was like, if I just go in all in the business side here and create this content in a way that not only shows it to our regular readers, but can rank first, second, or third in Google for some really valuable search terms, now we could double or triple the amount of people we can get to sign up through our site and, and provide some value to them. Because there was a lot of confusion as to, is this legal? You know, Do I get taxed if I win? Like Just a lot of questions people had. And if you answer those and rank in Google and you have an affiliate link in front of them. That's you know that's how you make make some good money. How did you manage to, the content so that it didn't devolve into a sports betting, uh, you know, affiliate program? I mean, like like do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like at some point, if you know, I think there's this natural tension between uh, writing for search optimization and writing for readability, and th- th- those two things aren't always the same. Uh, so how did you stick handle that natural tension? Yeah, you're right. It's totally different. And that is, you know, it's part of what I mean by going all in on the business side. I was almost allergic to SEO. I knew we did well on Google, but I didn't care about it. I wrote in such a way, I wanted everything to feel like I was writing an email to a friend. You know, our content was very audience-based and almost never, I mean, literally almost never can I recall maybe other than a handful of posts ever writing something with a headline. I was always wanted the headline to be catchy and entertaining, do well on social, but I never really thought about structuring a post or a headline to rank in Google because I, that type of content often is not that interesting and it feels vanilla. There is a way to make it interesting and you know, it's come a long way, but at the time like, I never thought about it. So you're right. It's like, how do you do this without watering down the site? And so what we did is I didn't know much about SEO because of this. So I spent that whole summer watching videos on YouTube, learning everything I possibly could. Um, and I was like, okay, our, I'm starting ahead here because I got a site that I know will do well. It's, it's got a lot of backlinks. We've been around for eight years. We're pretty relevant, particularly in this area. We're well known. So what we did is we created these like long form articles that were meant to rank in Google, but we didn't have to put them in the main feed of our site. Um, we did on occasion and like before the Super Bowl and March Madness, we would we were unabashed about pushing it to our readers. And my guess is if you looked at the site right now, you'll see some gambling articles, but didn't hurt the audience. Every time we did it, it never our audience has continued to grow, you know, up until I, you know, I, I kind of left the business last year. So didn't hurt our audience, but we would create these long form news articles that our regular audience never even saw. It was just a link in the nav bar. And sure enough, we were number one or number two for New Jersey online sports betting. So our audience hmm. had no idea almost. We even started doing it for online casino articles. Uh, at one point, we were the number one result for Michigan online casinos. And if you were a reader of our site, you know you would have maybe seen the link in the dropdown, but it, it didn't bother you. It wasn't in your face. So we were able to square it. And then we pushed offers to our readers when we thought it made sense before big sporting events and things like that. Got it. Got it. That's super helpful. So walk me through where the business is with this inflection of, of new money. Like where are you top line, bottom line uh, in this kind of first year with the sports betting as a revenue source? Yeah. So it was, it launched in uh, New Jersey, launched in August of 2018. And I'm just like, I'm like, if I do this right, this has got to be a at least a seven-figure-a-year business. Just, again, I'm back of the napkin, just in New Jersey. And then I'm like, Pennsylvania, our audience is 40% larger. Let's see what happens there. Um, and the first week of the football season, and you kind of have an, an idea of our revenue now. I mean, we do like 250 a year top line, kind of set aside the Super Bowl. But that, was, that would have been a decent year for us. And uh, the first week of the NFL season with one sports book in like three days, we did $30,000. And I'm just like, I wrote one article and made $30,000. And, you know, two years ago, I was maybe on pace to do 70 after we lost the surveys in a whole year. And I was like, this is going to work, you know, Um, one sports book. And I'm looking at, I'm like, it's got to be a glitch. Can't be right. It was a 400 word article. 
but it ranked in Google on NFL the first week of NFL Sunday for a certain sports book. And it was right at the top. And I was like, wow. Um, so we, we began to get to, I'd say like by the end of that football season consistently, we were maybe like, you know, high five figure months during football season, end of 20, 2018, maybe mid five figures. Then when Pennsylvania launched, we got, uh, we had a month or two where we hit six figures in a month. Got it. So you're around, call it annualized around a million. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was kind of a straight line up from that point. So it was kind of like pick your date on the calendar. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, we were very quickly getting to a point where it was like, okay, well, we do this right. We could do, you know, a million dollars over the course of the next 12 months. And every month we would kind of reset that bar and like this, this is a good hockey stick here. Um, yeah. But it was, it was about a year of New Jersey and then Pennsylvania launched about a year later. And that summer was actually really slow. Um, because you were waiting for Pennsylvania to launch. There's not much betting on baseball. Everyone kind of signs up for a sports book around football and a little bit of basketball. So it was, I was getting a little concerned. That, like, I hope this repeats itself the second football season with a new state. And then sure enough, like the end of uh, the 2019 summer heading into that football season, Pennsylvania launches. And then, you know, we kind of pinned it to boom, like six figure months, like right out of the gate. And how does the cash move? So you send a reader to DraftKings or Barstool Sports or whoever. When do you get your 300 bucks? So typically, most affiliate sale, you know, most affiliate marketing, if you buy a product, is when you, you buy it. With a service, it's a little murkier because there's, there's a, you sign up, you deposit, you place a bet. So most of the sports books, um, will kind of pay once somebody makes a deposit to their account and then places $10 of bets, 25 it, it varies, but they have to take an action. You can't just send them an email address or a click. They, they have to be a real customer and they have to open up their wallet. But it wasn't much. It was then, like $20 not and to trigger a payout. Yeah, great. So you send them to Barstool. They go through and register, hook up their bank account. Maybe they... Kind of drag their feet, then they make it. Then they make a bet, and then they're like, "Okay, you sent us a paying customer. We owe you three hundred bucks." Like, how long after that would it take you to get three hundred dollars wired to your account? Yeah, just a monthly invoice. So we'd get a, um, you know, in most affiliates, kind of the same way. You just get a report, usually a daily report, and you can kind of see where you're at. And at the end of the month, um, you know, you send an invoice and, and get it. So, you know, pretty quickly, like we started getting some pretty big monthly checks that was yeah you know the first few were kind of like uh you know it kind of took your breath away when you actually saw them like okay we got a business now you know and i wasn't pocketing all this you know we we hired more people and you know like we hired some people to write for seo we we hired a video guy we got an office so we were trying to re you know reinvest it but still i mean it, it upped it upped my income you know quite a bit as well that's awesome. So walk me through what happens next, in particular, the decision the, the decision to kind of merge with Jason. Like what precipitated that and maybe walk through the, uh, the Warwick uh, relationship? Yeah. Yeah. So right as um, in 2019, is kind of after the first year in New Jersey, um, I got a few offers to buy the site, to, to get the site acquired um, from couple of European companies that kind of aggregate these, you know, like affiliate marketing publishers. And I was kind of like, what? You know, like literally a year ago, I was scrounging together and I'm getting re I got a, you know, a, a Swedish guy like flying into New York to meet with me about buying my site. You know, it What's was a lot to take in. What was he offering? Did you get that? Did you get that far with any of them? Yeah, I, uh, I did. Yeah. I had two to consider. I, I don't think I can give the specifics, but I mean, they were like low seven figures. I mean, life-changing money, you know, considering where I had been 18 months earlier, it was very difficult. I mean, I deeply, deeply considered it. Um, and I would have stayed on for a few years and had an earn out and a chance to make more. But at the time, Pennsylvania had still not launched, right? This is kind of late 2018, early 2019. So kind of in the middle of the time frame I just discussed. And I'm like, geez, I know there's an earn out. We can get more. But I still feel like we're selling ourselves short here. This is early days. Only one state has really fully legalized it, New Jersey. 
Um, I know our biggest audience hasn't even turned online yet and we can rank and search in other states. So, you know, it, it was tough. I ultimately turned down both of the offers and they were both, you know, low seven figures. And again, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, geez, two years ago, I'm looking at my wife and kid, like, how do I, I got to go, you know, <laughs> no disrespect to like an Uber driver. I was like, I might go do an Uber tonight, just make ends meet. And two years later, I'm turning down this money. So that was tough. Um, that was a tough call. But one of the um, one of the people at DraftKings connected me and Jason. And uh, Jason's background, he was an affiliate for DraftKings when daily fantasy sports were really popular. And if you're into sports and you remember maybe six, seven, eight years ago, around 2015, every other commercial you would see during a football game was for the million dollar jackpot for DraftKings and FanDuel. And they were running ads and people would go search for DraftKings promo code and and some other terms. And Jason's websites just were always number one. And he did really well for himself in that wave. And we happened to live about 20 minutes apart. So this guy at DraftKings says, you before you sell, like you might want to talk to this guy because he really knows the business. He's unbelievable at SEO. And but he doesn't have a big site like you have. And if you guys took your big site and his know-how in SEO, and he's got some smaller sites that do really well in Google too, like those more vanilla sites, but like he was really good about it. All the stuff I didn't even think about years before. So we went out and got drinks and found out we had the same birthday, different years, but same day, had too many bourbons together. And I was, you know, we're like, screw it. Let's work together. Let's just get an office you know, 10 minutes from each of our houses, I'll turn down the millions of dollars and we'll, we'll, we'll take a swing at more. Um, and to be fair, it wasn't that quick. Like I, I took about a month or two to kind of weigh these options and he very patiently kind of allowed me to work through that. But I kind of knew like there's more upside here and, and we got along great. It was like, if nothing else, this will be fun. Um, so how did you guys figure out the relative valuations of both of your companies? So, uh, yeah, because we, this was a merger, no cash exchanges hands as I understood it. You you simply merged and the the entity you each took shares in the entity. Yeah, and the thing about a uh, thing about a great partnership is, I mean, I don't think we ever actually papered it initially. Carl, <laughs> um, you're kidding me. I, I mean, you, it was mostly was on a not, handshake. We had it drawn up and a um, lot of bourbon. Let's be clear. What's that? And a lot of bourbon. And a lot of bourbon. <laughs> a lot of bourbon. I, I had too much that night. I remember like, I was like, shit, I think I blew, sorry, I don't know if I can curse, but I, I think I blew it with him because I was like slurring and usually not like me, but they poured me like a cup of bourbon and we hit it off. Anyway, um, no, we, we had a paper, we had the agreement, but we were in the office every day and I, it was sitting there. I, I don't think we both ever signed it. Um and But the agreement, it wasn't equity in each other's business initially. What we did was I had the bigger site. So I had slightly better terms in the beginning. And he would, what we did is we interlinked the sites. So one thing you could do for SEO is link to other sites and that can help raise, you know, that site you link to in search results. So we kind of had this strategy of linking them together, kind of systematically attacking different search terms, depending on which site, um, he had some sites that were geared at specific states and things like that. So he would get a percentage of my revenue and I would get a percentage of his. And so like each month, he, neither of us owned equity in the other person's business, but we were incentivized equally. And each month we trued up. And honestly, I think we only trued up once or twice. And then we knew we were onto something bigger. And then that's when we were like, we should create a, a company that we jointly own. We'll keep our assets on our own company, but we should think about what we could do together now to take this from something that makes money in two states to something that makes money all over the US and, and even Canada maybe. And that's, you know, we kind of formed a third business, CBWG, and that we each owned half of. So that was pretty easy. Okay, so CBWG was a, was a hold co. You, you had these separate operating sites, Crossing Broad being the, the kind of brand name for your site. Mm -hmm. They continue to operate, they continue to generate revenue, which you kept. You didn't fold those operating businesses into uh, CBWG. Correct. Is that right? Correct. We each kind of okay. kept our own revenue. And I think, you know, we, we were kind of competing with each other, but it was very, um, you know, like we knew we were both beneficial to each other. We were sharing an office. So we rooted for each other. We were both competitive. You know, I'd be like, how much did you make this month? Right. And we were both doing well. And uh, it, it 
Crossing Broad was maybe a little ahead because we started as a bigger site. So for a few months, like I was waiting and then like out of nowhere, um, like he had a couple of monster months and I'm like, how did you do this? And so it's like, we need a holding company because the two of us together will, 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 will do well. Um, so yeah, we, so we technically had three businesses heading into 2020. Okay. I want to get into how those came together and the ultimate acquisition, but I'd be curious to know how your wife reacted when you told her you were going to turn down the low seven figure offer and instead get into business over a drink with Jason. Like that strikes me as a difficult conversation. Um, yeah, it, it really wasn't. I mean, she, she encouraged it. She said, listen, I know it. she's great. Like, I met her right around when I started the site and she's the one who said, go for it. It's a good idea. So she had kind of been through all the ups and downs, but you know, I'm just showing her like the back of the napkin. And I'm like, listen, even if we're not good at this, like we'll be better off than we were before. Um, and I like running the business and you know, all that stuff. So she was great about it. I mean, didn't second guess. I think she actually pushed me. She's like, it seems like you want to go with Jason. Like, just do that. You know, it'll work out. I, so she was great about it. Um, it was worse so for me that, that following summer, before Pennsylvania launched, when things slowed down again, and I was like six to eight months removed from turning down millions of dollars, and we weren't, you know, the, like the summers are slow. I didn't know that at the time. Like you just don't make a lot in the summer. It's a very seasonal business. And I was like, oh man, did I miss my shot? It was harder on me than her, I think, for a few months there. Interesting. Where does it go from there? So how does CBWG become the main company that you were both owning? Like walk me through that because right now you've got these separate businesses and then this you've you forged this this uh, hold code. Yeah. So what what we had figured out now this is you know late through 2019 Pennsylvania launched and we saw the playbook in two states and we're like we know how to go after this in Google we know how a site that has a lot of readers like Crossing Broad did can monetize that audience really well by putting these offers and links you know, just in the regular articles and then doing the search component. So we really understood the playbook. And we're like, if Colorado launches sports betting, which they were going to, we know exactly how they, you can make money in Colorado. We don't have a website that has an audience there, but we know exactly what the playbook is. And so what we were doing towards the end of 2019 into 2020 as other states, Colorado, Michigan, Indiana, were talking about legalizing sports betting is we were trying to raise money to go buy blogs in those states or cities, Denver, Chicago, uh, Illinois was thinking about doing it, that were maybe undervalued like mine was. You know, you could have bought my site. If you would have given me $400,000 in 2017, I probably would have had to take it. So we were looking at sites that were maybe we could buy for low six figures, knowing that we could turn them into seven figure websites. Um, and it turned out there was a lot of guys like me out there who had these good audiences. They had built a sports blog. They were one or two man shows, nice little lifestyle businesses. And we were trying to raise money from private equity, local investors. We were, we had a pitch deck and we were in New York, like trying to get money and buy these, these sites in this holding company. And, and we knew if we got them, we'd be able to, you know, 4X the valuation like immediately when their states legalized uh, sports betting. So what happened? Uh, COVID. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was like January, 2020. And I remember we were in New York with, for a couple meetings and that was right when like you knew it was a thing. And we're just like, maybe we should bring hand sanitizer when we go. Like, you know, cause you know, Jason was like, I'm telling you, this thing's here. It's it's out of China. It's here. He was right. I'm sure in hindsight, he was right. But um, right when we really hit our stride then, the, the Super Bowl, uh, the, the football season just concluded. We made a ton of money on the Super Bowl. We, were, we had some good leads to raise money. And we had these target sites that were interested in getting acquired. And then COVID hits. And, you know, if you remember, and everything picked back up quickly because all the money printing and all that. But for about a month or two there, it was scary. Like all money dried up. The stock market was down 30%. And we're like, well, there goes two, you know, jamokes like us getting $20 million to go buy a bunch of sports blocks. No one's going to give us that anymore. Um, and it was kind of a fortuitous bounce because we're like, well, we got these sites who are interested. We've kind of sold them on the opportunity. We don't have the money. Maybe we just offered a partner with them. 
and we'll create this content for them. We have the relationship with the sports books. They're now paying us like top shelf rates to refer customers. We know exactly what kind of content would work on their site. So let's just partner with them. We'll write the content. We'll make them money and we'll basically split 50-50. And even 50-50 of 10 different sites is, is a really good business. So that's that's what we did. Even though sports shut down, we knew they would come back in a few months. And we spent that downtime, struck a partnership with a site in, in uh, Denver, in Chicago, and then a big uh, kind of network, a couple of webs, big college football websites in the South. Um, so we had... we. Entered left COVID with these three really good partnerships we had in other, and how did you, other markets. And so what was the trigger that made you want to sell this company? Because it sounds like things were booming. Yeah. Um, so as we, you know, as sports picked back up 2020, we got started to get some offers again. Because now we're like, you know, there's three or four public companies that kind of aggregate a lot of the sites in the space. And we were easily the largest independent one. But we were outranking in Google in some cases, you know, these other companies that had been acquired, you know, some other websites had been acquired that were more SEO focused. We were outranking those, you know, so like people could see what we were doing. And so they started kick, you know, we got our tires kicked a few more times. And, you know, eventually it's like, this is a great, a great business, but we don't ultimately own these sites. And if someone's going to value us on the revenue from sites, we have two, three year partnership agreements with. Because, you know, they'd be buying those agreements as well. You know, you start to talk about the numbers and you start seeing eight-figure offers. And it's like, okay, at what point, you know, at what point is this nuts? Like, if you would have told me three years ago, I could, I'm looking at seven and eight figures. I, I can't in good conscience even think about turning that down. What's your revenue at this point? So... So we we went this we wound up selling at the end of 2020. At the time of the sale, we were on like a five million per year run rate in revenue. Um, but if you had just taken the prior three months of football season, it, you know, it may have been more like seven or eight. I mean, it was it was zero in May of 2020 because there was no sports. But you, know, you got to kind of throw that out. But we were and what would you we were on, what would you got what would you expect to 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 profit on like. Operating profit on the five, uh, probably about two or three million. Okay, got it. So that that's the the entire business. So that's Jason's business, your business combined, top line five. But it it'd be higher if if you take into consideration if you had the run right through football season through the rest of the year. Okay, so did you? Did you shop the business? Did you kind of hire an M and A banker and 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 shop it around? Did people come to you? Like, what was the selling process like? No, I mean people people came to us, um, and one of the companies, well, the company we we eventually sold to XL Media. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get that in a minute. Was one of the companies who had uh, kicked my tires a few years earlier, so that we knew them. Um, kind of a different group at that time, but you know they reached back out, and you know, you know, were like. Okay, uh, this, you 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 held up your end of the bargain. It kept growing. Uh, let's talk again. Um, yeah, I mean, it, they came to us. And in hindsight, you know, should we have maybe thought about hiring a, a banker? Yeah, probably because a year later, sites got even more money, and we, we we probably did leave some money on the table. But you know, it just eventually got to the point where it was it was a lot of money, and the earnout made sense to us. We knew the business would keep growing. I mean, just. Even if we did nothing different, there was going to be a larger TAM, you know, as states legalized. And if we just kept our course and even fell behind trend, just expanding the market by 40%, we would make more money. So we had to have an earnout that at least made sense that allowed us to capture future value. Um, but eventually we kind of got those terms and, and it, it, it made us uh, agree to an offer. Yeah. Walk me through the offer because I think Excel made it public. So what did they offer you guys? Yeah, so they offered us. Um, we wound up getting uh, like twelve and a half up front. There were some contingencies on some of that, um, and then we got an earnout was nine and a half, and then uh, we got some stock uh, that took like two years to vest in the company. Um, that was at, at the time valued at like would have you know would have been valued at around three million, three and a half million, I think. That's a lot of change for a guy who's living in his basement three, three or four years earlier. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was. You know, and 
I mean, ultimately it's like, I knew if we kept going another year, the multiples were pretty clear there, you know, there were other acquisitions in the space. They were about, you know, at the time they were like five to six times profit, uh, maybe 12 times revenue. That's kind of where it was going. So that's about where we're, I'm sorry, uh, five times revenue, I guess. Right. Um, so there was established comps. Had we held on another year into the bubble of 2021, um, some of our competitors who were at like a $7 million run rate got $39 million for a single website a year later. So like knowing that in hindsight, yeah. But honestly, had you entered 2022, then I, those, those multiples kind of disappeared last year. So, you know, we, we didn't time it perfectly. But again, it's, you see that number and you know that it's attainable with an earnout. It's like, you know, you're right. You're in the basement a few years earlier. You don't, let's not play with fire here. Um, you know, let's make this work. How was the earnout structured? What was it tied to? Um, rev- revenue targets. Revenue targets. Was there any net, re- net revenue? Risk? It had to be prof- reasonably profitable revenue. So, like gross, uh, gross profit. Okay, gross profit. Yeah. Was there any risk that the legislation that was rescinded in 2018 or overturned could? be put back on the books. Was that a risk you and Jason talked about? Because that effectively, if I'm reading it right, would have wiped out the business overnight. I mean, did you guys talk about that at all? Not really. I mean, any company that kicked our tire, that that sort of hurt our offers early on because it wasn't clear a state like New York would legalize it. Still not clear clear Texas or Florida will. And that kind of hurt those early offers I had. Um, Not really. There's... You know, if, if, if anyone's been paying attention, there's so much momentum behind this. The sports leagues are behind it. Um, the big cable networks make money. There's a huge lobbying contingent in the gambling industry. And states make money. Ultimately, states make money. So there's some more conservative states that are slower on the uptick and, and might not do it. But it was so clear that this wave was coming and there was no real obvious federal regulation that was going to stop it. Everyone was kind of applauding the fact that it that this law was overturned. It made a lot of sense. So it wasn't a material concern for us at the time. And it's still not now. I think over time, you'll see some advertising regulations. You're starting to see talk about that, like, you know, how, how you can promote a sports book, but there's, there's still no real risk of them, you know, of, of it being made illegal. I don't, I don't think that's a well, material risk. What was life like during the earnout for you? Uh, it was, it was good. It was good and bad. Um, you know, when you're self-employed running a sports blog for 10 years, you're, um, we had a guest on our podcast who, who said they, they're, uh, chronically unemployable or something. Uh, I forgot, I'm screwing up the phrase, but you kind of get the point. You know, you're, you're used to being on your own. It's tough going to work for a company. The company was based out of, of Israel in the UK. So there was a, there was a little bit of a culture gap there and like the way, we did business in this crazy high growth market uh, and the way, you know, the company, it's a publicly traded company, the way their structure is set up. So, you know, some of that fault is on us. Um, ultimately, it went well, like the business did really well. We were their platform acquisition in the U.S. and our you know, run rates public was around five million when they acquired us. And at their last earnings report, which uh, came out about a month ago. The U.S. side of the business, I believe, I think I'm getting this right, which is the business that we created and the kind of the platform that fell below that, um, you know, did 44 million in revenue uh, last year. Wow. So now that wasn't all our business, um, but it was basically the the roadmap we had for agency partnerships. And then we they had a, a couple of really good guys on the team there who helped us get more partners and bigger partners and some major newspapers that we worked with. Um, they acquired one of our partners, like called Saturday Down South. So, you know, certainly the, the company's infrastructure and funds helped us grow that. But at the end of the day, the business went from zero in the U.S. they had when they acquired us to, I think, $44 million last year, roughly, in, in the U.S. sports business. I'd imagine they're pretty happy with the acquisition. Yeah, I mean, it, it worked, you know, our, it worked out well. Um, you know, yeah. well, it wasn't all profit, obviously. And when, when you have partnerships, a lot of that, half of that goes out to partners. I, I don't know what percentage is partnership revenue, but, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, it, it worked out well. Um, it worked out. Yeah. Well. 
Hey, are you up for a quick lightning round and answer a quick, a quick phrase or sentence we'll do and we'll, uh, we'll wrap. Sure. Sure, good? sure. Yeah. Awesome. What's the most questionable tactic or trick an acquirer tried to play on you in the process of trying to get your business or sell your, or, or buy your business? Uh, I don't want to say a trick, but I think one of the things where like we would get lost in the weeds on things that ultimately, they, you know, we, we'd start negotiating over something that we didn't even care about and we'd we'd win that and be like, shoot, like we should have thought about something else, like how it's taxed for them. Like, I don't care. As long as we get the capital gains, you guys do it. But we'd start fighting about stuff like that. Biggest mistake you made during the process of selling your company? Um, I, I wish we would have like uh, been more aggressive. We had to kind of renegotiate the deals we went on because our business kept growing. And I think in the beginning, if we had just been a little bit more aggressive, it could have saved both sides, like time and heartache. We, we would have got to the same spot, but it was, you know, there was a lot of thrusting for a few months as we're working through details and we're pushing for a higher valuation and so on. What was the lowest point emotionally you reached during the process of selling your company? Uh, me and Jason would have these long um you know, late night phone calls, just hand wringing each other, not, not arguing, you know, just like, are we doing the right thing? This term, that term, the earnout is what really made it difficult. If you're selling your business, you really need to think about the earnout, both from a sales standpoint and then after the fact, even in the sale, it just, the negotiation would have been so much easier if it wasn't for the earnout, but we knew half the money was on the table and you have to think of every eventuality to protect against to make sure you have the right to try and earn that money. And that was miserable for both sides, but it was a kind of a necessary thing because they weren't going to give us all the money up front and, and understand what was the, what was the deal point attached to the earnout that was most uh, difficult to negotiate for that, that you were most passionate about getting? Uh, we just wanted to be that we wanted to have the right to be there for the full three years. And if, you know, effectively operate the business as any owner would. We we wanted material say in, in X, Y, and Z. And, um, you know, that that's tough for a public company. I get their view. But for us, it was like, you know, what if you just fire us on day one and, and you guys can't do this as well as we can. So that, that was tough. Um, but we got through it. Like, we got through it. What was the highest point emotionally you reached during the process of selling your company? Uh, day the money hit the account. <laughs> Where were you? Were you refreshing on a mobile? Were you in your banker's office? Describe the moment. No, it's, it's you know this is like you know, December 2020. So this is like kind of peak COVID still. So I'm at home. It was the, the sale closed late on a Thursday night. It was announced London company early AM Friday morning. So I wake up. I see like their stock price reacts. We get up. This the money still hadn't hit the account. We're going to do a Teams call with like the company. So I'm waiting to get on the Teams call. And finally, you know, I see the money hits the account around eight or eight thirty and. You're just like, okay, it's real. It's real. We're good. We're good here. Um, and working out the part with my partners, Jeff and Mike, that wasn't fun. Like I had to buy them out before the sale and use funds from the sale. Like, you know, so that was, it was just uncomfortable because they became good friends and we had to negotiate on what the buyout terms were. And, you know, that's, a, you know, it was glad to be over, put it that way. Yeah. As you prepared for an exit, were there uh, any resources you could point our listeners to that were helpful for you, books or courses or uh, anything at all that you could sort of help other people get educated about selling a company? Man, um, you know, I, I read one thing. The first thing, I read a lot of articles about people who sold their business and didn't know what to do afterwards. And that actually stopped me from selling the first time. Because, you know, it wasn't so much money where I wouldn't have to work and it's still not. I mean, I got to do something else. But um, and I remember thinking like, geez, I, do I really just want to not have this like daily mission every day? So I would think about that. The other thing is just understand every other business that's sold in your space and just and you'll find the commonalities in the comps. And like it can be easier if you just have that database of, of comps and like businesses. And, you know, it, you can make your argument that much easier and know that like you're getting a fair price or not. What did you buy yourself as a trophy to commemorate the win? I'm not like a big material guy. Like we, we, my wife and I bought a vacation home uh, in the Jersey Shore. I mean, that was always something we wanted to do. So that was, I guess, the trophy, but nothing flashy, you know, like you know, an okay car. Vacation home's gonna go buy a Lambo or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but you have started another company. It's called Smoking Robot. 
And it's an AI website covering the world, the emerging, exploding world of AI. Just describe it for us. Yeah. So, um, look, obviously, AI is all the rage the last few months. Um, and I think, you know, I personally have a, a pretty good knack for creating compelling content. Like, that's what I really like doing for so long is the passion side of the business. But then I'm thinking, man, there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands of um, software tools and applications and programs that are going to come out that are going to be the size of the next Airbnb, the size of the next Uber. They're going to make people's lives easier. Maybe it's accounting software. It's, it's writing software, um, you know, voice to text, uh, text to voice software, whatever it is. And all those are going to have monthly subscriptions and they're all going to have affiliate programs. And in my head, I'm like, this is kind of the same playbook. If I can create an audience with content, um, there's an, a literally global market for think, you know, um, software that you could become an affiliate for. And even if I'm a player in that game, it should do all right. You, know, you don't even have to be the player. The market will be so big. So very early days, but right now we're, we're just a newsletter and kind of building the brand. I will put the Smoking Robot links in the show notes at BuiltTheSell.com so you can grab that. Kyle, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And there you have it for today's interview between Kyle and John. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure you hit that subscribe button. And as a reminder, you can actually watch this full interview over at our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio. I truly find seeing some of the facial expressions and emotions brings a new element to the show that I think you will enjoy. So be sure to head over to our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the deal terms of this acquisition, head over to our show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering and to Scribe for sponsoring today's episode and to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. I look forward to talking to you again next week. 